Thank you, Brother Laux and singers. God recognized the brevity of life and stepped in to give us life again because we are a flower quickly fading. This is how the psalmist projects it. And this morning we have hope because Jesus has come and paid the price for us. Can you say amen? Amen. You know, I made a statement uh, about a month or so ago, and I want to make it in second service. I had not communicated it in first. You know, as Christians, we're supposed to show a better way. And our world has been traumatized by a lot of things. Of course, uh, the pandemic is one, but in the midst of the pandemic, a lot of racial disharmony. And I had somebody tell me a story in this community, a person of color. And the story went like this. I'm going to share it with you so that you can understand if you're not a person of color. Uh, the person was shopping in one of our local stores, and someone fell down. And in the midst of falling down, a person of color came to assist a person of a white race. They waved the person of color off and allowed a person of their Anglo-Saxon uh, gender to help them. Imagine how that made that person feel. It was terrible. Now, there are a lot of you sitting here listening today who really got what I just said because you've experienced something like that. And then there's others listening to me right now who have never experienced that. And so I believe as Christians, we're called to understand and help chart a path to a true experience of integration and togetherness that the world can't model because they don't have Jesus. So I'm asking you today to make sure you don't inadvertently move forward in blind spots, especially if you're part of a majority ethnicity, and that we have a real sympathy and a prayerful sensitivity to what it means to be a minority. So I'm asking you to be aware of this. Please be careful what you say and how you talk. Try to be from the heart pure in Jesus and love. But if there's a learning moment for you, receive it well from a person of color. All right, I want to invite the Cook family to come up here with me. And we are going to dedicate little William. Uh, May and Emily are young missionaries, and William is their firstborn. And Emily's parents are here with us from Washington. And we are celebrating the joy of life. And this morning he's sleeping, which will make this easier. So, although they let me hold him. Now, we know there's a pandemic going on, and uh, we've talked about this. I offered to do this baby dedication the way we did one a few weeks ago, but uh, they're glad for me to hold little William. I'm not sick. If you're sick, please stay home. And uh, we know that the uh, theory of the super spreader who's asymptomatic is a theory. Uh, so this morning, I'm actually going to hold little William. But a couple weeks ago, we did this, celebrating little Avelina's life. This morning, it's a little boy. And they are both firstborns. And this morning, it's the Cut family, and they want little William to be raised in a Christian setting with the support of a church family. And they will be working with us uh, quite extensively over the next however many months that turns out to be to uh, minister in this community. 
Jesus gave people choices. Little William is not quite big enough to make a choice. But mom and dad are making the choice. And their choice is to make their home a spiritual home, a home that's fragrant with the love of a mom and dad, and that puts the expansion of Christ's kingdom as a stewardship in his little heart. He grows up thinking he has something to do for God. And I think about Jesus brought into the uh, temple. He was too little to make a decision too. He made that decision before he came to earth. But as he came to earth, he made a journey. His parents dedicated themselves. And this morning, that's what we're doing. We're dedicating the two of you. And uh, his heart is shaped by your home. His little heart, his life is shaped by the genes you've given him and now the environment you'll set. And we want William to grow up to be a mighty warrior for God, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and led wisely by his parents until he's led by decision of his own through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So this morning I think of this text from Psalm 127. It is a psalm of ascent, which has been where we are in our prayer meeting series. And let it be a prayer for the Kut family. It says, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man and the woman whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So I'm a good generation ahead of you on this. But when he's a young man, he'll be part of the strength of your life. And that's our prayer. So let's see if this morning he'll let me uh, hold him here or if he wakes up when he senses I'm not mommy. And we're going to ask God to bless mom and dad and bless grandma and grandpa and little William. Let's pray. Lord, this is a miracle. A little bitty baby who's come to be perfect in health into an imperfect world. And we're just praying that you'll bless him with all the blessings you can give him, the security, the strength, the confidence that comes from a mom and dad that love you, the richness, the affection, the purpose, the sense of the stewardship of his life. May he be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, may he be a true man of God. And along the way, may he be a young man of God and a little boy for God. So bless Emily and Nay, as they take him on a journey. And I pray now, Lord, that you'll bless Grandma and Grandpa. And of course, there's a Grandma and Grandpa a long ways away that can't be here. Bless them too and all the church family to support him in all kinds of ways. Words of encouragement to a young family. Support in youth ministries. Engagement with Christian education. We put their lives and the lives of this little one in your hands now, we pledge our support as a congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, it went well. He's still asleep. And that'll make the rest of the church service better for the, the four of you. So God bless you. And we'll have a certificate and a gift for you. Right here we have it, actually. Thank you so much, Bernice, for bringing that. So may God bless.
as we make our home sanctuaries. All right, let's open the Word of God, and before we do that, let's ask for a special blessing. I invite you to bow your heads again. Lord, guide us now. May our hearts be humble before you. May we serve you in humility and thus be able to see and serve in truth and grace. Save us, Lord, from the many lies that are twist on the truth that are floating around today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm holding in my hands an article. I'm going to go after this message a little differently than the last one. And I'm going to do this to get your attention in the midst of a sermon entitled Risk and Redemption, the Journey to to Babylon. Climate Sunday comes from the Independent Catholic News Agency. Climate Sunday launched to promote church climate action. It's from earlier this summer. It was organized by the Environmental Issues Network and churches together in Britain and Ireland. What are they going to do? They are going to encourage churches once over the next year to be sure and hold a Climate Sunday for the purpose of understanding our responsibility to heal our planet and to pray and to act in response to the climate emergency. It's interesting in the article, it identifies the Bishop John Arnold Salford, the bishop responsible for the environment for the Catholic bishops of England and Wales. Now, we have a lot of departments in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but we don't have this department. I think it's imperative that you understand they do have the department, the department. When you read the rest of the article, you come upon some very interesting facts. And uh, this statement was made, in a post-pandemic world, the Climate Sunday Project is an excellent opportunity for Catholic parishes in England and Wales, as well as our ecumenical uh, brothers and sisters, to understand responsibility, our responsibility, to heal our planet and to pray and act in a responsible way to the climate emergency. Now, written down this side of my piece of paper, I've written the names of all the churches that have signed on as organizations. So a few of them are not churches. You have Christian Aid, the Tear Fund, Salvation Army, AROCA UK, Operation NOAA, the Climate Stewards. Those, some of them, are not religious organizations. But listen to the rest that are. Eco Sunday Scotland, Eco Congregation Ireland, Green Christians, Church of England, the Methodist Church, the Baptist Union of Wales, United Reformed Church, the Church of Scotland, the Union of Wales Independence, and the Church in Wales. And the interesting thing is they were hoping for seven, well, I don't know exactly what the number was. I know they were looking to launch on the first Sunday in September. They had 700 churches signed up, and they're hoping by their own admonition that they have thousands that are keeping a global, a, a global climate Sunday along the way. Now, I looked at a uh, prophetic website earlier a week or two ago, and I was looking at it, I saw a tagline for an article. It said, uh, dire wheat forecast in Great Britain uh, produces potential 10% rise in bread costs. And I'm thinking, dire wheat uh, harvest in, in England. I'm thinking, it sounds a little sensational to me. And I'm against sensationalism. I I don't want to be manipulated by my feelings into making a decision. So I thought, I'm going to Google this and see if it's true. So I took the exact title to the article. I Googled it into my search engine. And guess where it took me? It took me to the BBC. Now, why does that matter? 
because it's one thing for you to read a sensational uh, title to an article on a prophetic website because they may want to hook you and keep bringing you back. It's another thing when the title of the article is taken almost word for word from a very secular organization. The truth of the matter is Britain went through its driest May in decades. Their wheat harvest is down by 40%. The cost of bread is going to go up maybe by 10%. And do you think it's doing anything but fueling the fire for a global climate Sunday ecumenical movement? Now, why am I saying this? Why am I sharing this? Do you want to scare us, Pastor? No, I don't want to scare you. As a matter of fact, I want to do exactly the opposite. I want to arm you with confidence and courage for the strange world we're living in. And we are living in one. I want you to come away from this moment aware of how the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you for change and also aware of how God wants to assure you for the present and the future. In this morning's message, we're going to talk a little bit about Babylon. What has it been, literally? What does it mean in regards to our current culture? What will it be prophetically at the end of time? But I want you to ask yourself a question right at the beginning of this sermon. How open to you are truth? Whether it's you sitting here in the pews or whether it's somebody watching online. And we have thousands of devices that tune in on a weekly basis. So here's the question. Can you hear truth, whether it's said by your worst enemy or your best friend? Can the truth be truth, whether you like their starting place and don't agree with where they're going to end up, but it still rang true? I want to take an issue. Let's take the issue of global warming. If I were to take a poll right now and ask, how many of you believe that the world is warming, several hands would go up and some hands would stay down. As a matter of fact, a number of hands would stay down, not just because they don't think it's happening, but because they believe it is a right-wing or a left-wing political conspiracy theory to get control over people. Now, I personally am a person who, whether it comes from the left side of the aisle or the right side of the aisle, am trying to figure out what's actually going on in this world. Is there anybody else here like this today? I want you to really be able to understand something. Human beings are constantly questing for power. They are not naturally people of integrity. They'll tell you what they want to gather you into their power base. And I want you to understand this is going on. So it appears to me that all of the thermometers that are spread around this world are probably not liars. It appears to me that the intensity of storms and the rapidity of things that are going on, the world's never been on fire quite like it's been on fire in the last few years, okay? You just can't deny that. Uh, I, I'm working my way towards 60 now, and in those six decades, I've not seen the world quite on fire like it is now. When I look at the dynamic of, of the, the, the low barometric pressures and the superstorms that are created now, for some that are listening to me right now, they're, they're writing me off. They're writing me off. Some of you are listening to me right now, and you're writing me off because you've already decided before. I, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is already made up. And since you tend to be right of center, you've decided this is all, all man-made. If I were to come over here and talk about another issue, it might be true too, but because it's left of center, you're being written off. You're being written off. As a matter of fact, I preached a couple of sermons over the last few months. One was entitled, Given to Caesar, colon, Fear, Respect, and Love in the Age of COVID-19. And then I preached one two Sabbaths ago that was entitled, uh, Self-Interest in the Virtual Gospel. 
And in the midst of these sermons, in the midst of this pandemic, I'm actually challenging people to stop and think about where their motivational base comes from and what obligation they have to a world and how much risk they're supposed to take. I've gotten some interesting feedback from the sermons, as you can only imagine. It, it is not to be forgotten that I spent a series of eight weeks preaching a series called Confidence in Crisis, where my only goal was to assure you not to be afraid. God was in charge. But you know, that's not my only job. My job is actually to remind you there's a living God who is going to nudge you out of your comfort zone every once in a while to do things you don't feel comfortable doing. Are you to set your brain on the shelf? No. But are you to move according to the direct understanding of the principles of love to reach the lost and take some risks? Yes. So in getting feedback from different people near and far on these messages, I've come to a conclusion. And my conclusion is this. There's a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who have already decided right and wrong, and they don't really want to hear a message, especially if the message goes against what they think already. And they've defined themselves politically, and they've found any good reason they can to tag or turn down the volume on somebody who approaches it differently. Well, now you all came here of your free will, and all watching on this uh, device we call a live streaming internet ability platform, everybody's watching of their own free will. Everybody came of their own accord, which means that this morning you must believe that there's something you at least ought to engage or listen to, and I'm here this morning to challenge you. So let's take global warming for just a little bit. I've come to a conclusion, and I would really love to sharpen iron with somebody. I've never heard anybody say what I'm about to say. And I would love to visit with you after this sermon, not during the Sabbath because I have plans, but farther into the week, if you want to visit me, you can. But I've figured out why the right believes it's a complete concocted conspiracy of the left. Because the theology of the right is not the theology of truth. The theology of the right believes a temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, believes an antichrist will show up, and do you know what they believe after that seven-year period of tribulation? They believe that this world will be a place where Christ reigns for a whole millennia. There's no place for a dying world or a cleansed world in their theology. So they know beyond the shadow of a doubt that global warming is a hoax. But you know what? My Bible says that this world is like a garment and it's actually wearing out. This Bible I read tells me that there will be some way that the world is united, and it will be united, I'm convinced now, in self-interest. And I'm absolutely convinced that the Global Warming or Global Climate Sunday Initiative, which will follow up with its own global summit, they're calling it the COP26, it will be held in Glasgow next November 21. I don't mean this November 21. And I'm quite convinced that as I stood here in prayer meeting on Wednesday night with Pastor Andy Stojanovich and one of our college students, and we thanked the Lord, and he thanked the Lord for food, and then we knelt down and prayed, and I knelt down and I prayed, Lord, thank you that I've never gone a day in my life where I worried about a meal. I'm quite convinced that the driest May in London and the actual economic impact of some kind of agricultural crisis climate event is just a little bitty harbinger. That means 
a forebearer, someone who's telling something in advance. I'm quite convinced that all it would take in America is for a larger agricultural crisis to develop to where food prices went up and weren't such a small fraction of American lifestyles and maybe even a little bit of worry that there might not be these huge silos with grain sitting them. I'm quite convinced that a few little circumstances could recalibrate the sense of this country with its wide and diverse climates and its very diversified agricultural base. I'm quite convinced that it wouldn't take too terrible much to get all the world with a little insecurity tracking exactly the same way. I want you to think about it, folks. I'm talking to you this morning about the elements of risk and redemption and what a journey to Babylon looks like. Babylon has two phases in the Bible. There's the influence of Babylon, and there is this uh, cuddling up of the church to Babylonian ideas and ways which leads to prophetic messages. And then finally, there is the aggressive, dominating, and abusive element of Babylon. When we look at the Bible, Babylon is everywhere. Take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. We should know this one by heart, but we'll go there anyway. Revelation chapter 14. What does the journey to Babylon look like? We have these three angels, Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. It says, and another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, who has made all the nations drink of the wine of her passion, of her immorality. And by the way, it's not solely uh, structured around the dynamics of sexuality that this immorality is focused. It's around the whole componentry of abandonment from the law of God and where this leads. Take your Bibles and turn over to Revelation chapter 18. Babylon is fallen, and what is the obligation of the church? Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. This is the fourth angel's message. It is ours to give. It has not been given yet. And he cried with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, the false teachings, the immoral living, and the kings of the earth the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. There is an element of Babylonian influence, and there is an element of Babylonian oppression, both referred to in the Scriptures. We have not yet come to the prophetic point of Babylonian oppression and persecution, but it's not far around the corner. And I want to go just a bit farther here. I want every person listening to me who, who worries about opening their church to understand that in Michigan, before there was a softening of what this thing meant, the very first churches to declare they were opening up in spite of governmental orders were Catholic churches. And I want you to know that their boldness is because they have a plan, and they are making plans so that when the post-COVID 
uh, crisis is gone, a phrase directly from this article, they're ready to move. But what about God's people? Should we sit around and do nothing? Should we dig holes and hide in them? Should we decide that there is no mandate upon us to declare that Babylon has fallen? I'm not going to take the time this morning to declare what apostate Babylon is in the future. Most of us are familiar with that definition. But I do want us to understand this. There are many in the Seventh-day Adventist church that are drifting into Babylon. And their first journey or their first indicators that they're moving off the course is that they are choosing preachers to tickle their ears, to tell them smooth things, and to make sure they never hear anything that goes against their primary lens. Their primary lens of interpretation is a function of being immersed in a world in which sophistication and higher learning is an affront to the simplicity of what would be called a fundamental belief in God's Word in ordering one's life in such a way. God is calling us in this hour to make sure we're ready to deal with the battle that's coming. Now, is the church immune and should we expect that there would not be a prophetic call like there was in the pre-exilic days that calls us to a readiness for what's coming from an oppressive Babylon? Pastor, make yourself clear. I'm going to do it. This is the first of five sermons primarily on the life of, da of Daniel. And I want you to know that most of the stories related to Daniel deal with life and death issues for somebody. It might be Ashpenaz. It might be the wise men. It might be the three worthies. It might be Daniel. It's all of these people. I want you to understand that the book of Daniel, while it has a prophetic component to let us know what's coming, it has a living communication of faith that the God who knows it's coming is ready for it. Take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Daniel. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Go to the last chapter. I want to read a verse that has struck fear into many uh, well-versed prophetic students. Daniel, chapter 12. We have a Daniel seminar coming up in this church the third weekend of October, and we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 11, trying to put our arms around what it means. It doesn't appear that we have a real united sense of what it is, so we're going to keep studying and praying. But this verse has struck fear into many people's hearts, and I'd like to know why, but I think I know why. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. I want you to make sure you got it, friends. When Michael or Jesus stands up in the Bible, something significant is going on. When Jesus stands up for his people, it means something powerful is about to happen. At that time, this is the very great crisis of the end, Michael, the great prince who stands guard, he stands guard. Yes, those angels are sent to encamp around us. We've read, we've studied, we've taken assurance in. But in this moment, Christ himself is going to come down into the battle. He stands guard over the sons of his people. He will arise. Now the phrase that really gets us. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And we think, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Wring our hands. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I don't want to be through the time of trouble. I don't, I don't want to live in that phase and period of life. And it's as if all of a sudden God left the throne empty for a few minutes. And uh, that period of time is going to be one of those moments when I guess you better all fend for yourself and, and, and act like 
There is no world that belongs to the Father like we just sang about, this is my Father's world. Somehow, in the midst of our spiritual journey in the 21st century, there are lots of people that are worried about the distress that's going to come. But let's finish the verse. Could we do that? It's a time of trouble such as never was since there's been a nation. You say, well, pastor, there it is. Don't you get it? There's been a lot of bad things that have happened. Are you not a student of history? I am. I am, I am, I am. But you know the difference between history and this final chapter in history is that in those chapters of history, God's name has not been on the line. God's people have not been at such great disadvantage as they are right now. And for all the human suffering that's gone on, I cannot explain it all, but I do know this, God has always cared. But when it finally comes down to the attempt to destroy a a reminder, a visible reminder in the people of God from the face of the earth, Christ himself stands up and he takes over guarding and he says, I've got this, the rest of the verse. And at the time, at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be, some of your verses say delivered, this one says rescued. Now, I don't know how much kinder God could have written chapter 12, verse 1. I don't know how he could have put it together in a better way to say, don't be afraid. I don't know how God could have said, the future is pretty dark, but the light of this world is going to come down and be your light and be your security. The wall of fire is going to be about you. The cloud by day, the fire by night. God could not have had Daniel pen this verse any better than it was penned. It's bookended on one end by the assurance that Christ stands up and he takes over every element of guarding his people. On the other side, it ends with an assurance that my people will be delivered. Now, You may go through some hard times. You probably will. But you know, as I was reading this uh, yesterday, actually, about about Huss being led out to die, one of the most beautiful things I read as I was reading from the Spirit of Prophecy is how God took away from him the fear of death. And so when they come around to light the pyre, the pile of sticks, and they go to the back, he says, don't light it from the back. If I was afraid, I wouldn't be here. Come around and light it in front. I want to tell you, friends, as the Catholic Church in the Dark Ages sought to destroy the little country of Bohemia, and time and time again, God stood in the way to protect His truth. But those battles mean nothing to what's coming, and God is going to be for us more than He was for Moses, and more than He was for the Israelites, and God's going to do more than He did for Joshua, and more for Jehoshaphat, and God's going to do more than He did for the three worthies, and God's going to do more than He did in the lion's den. Can you say amen? This is where we're headed. These are just the warm-up. Since the trouble's going to be greater, the deliverance is going to be greater, and God doesn't want us to be afraid. But if we're living by fear now, then we have no chapters to get us ready. If we don't learn how faithful He is and that He intervenes when He needs to, and we don't learn to suffer on the way, then we're in big trouble. Now, before Daniel got to Babylon, he was living in a town called Jerusalem. And I want to show you today what the chapters of life were like before the outbreak of the persecution of that mighty power from the north. There are in the Old Testament 299 mentions of Babylon. More than every other Old Testament book combined, Jeremiah has 179 of them. If there is a prophet that precedes the breakout of persecution, it can be none other 
than Jeremiah himself. I want to go on a journey with you. Risk and redemption. Are you willing to move according to the still small voice amplified by the Holy Spirit as you're in the Word in a place like this, perhaps? Go back to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 1, and we're going to have a rapid survey, as rapid as I can make it. As a matter of fact, probably more rapid than it should be. But the book is there for you to read. I'm just going to highlight a few things. Jeremiah chapter 1. It's an amazing story. Chapter 1 is the commissioning of Jeremiah. Go to verse 17. He says, Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them, all of which I command you. Don't be dismayed before them, or I'll dismay you before them. You get the idea that God has a very intimate relationship with this man. He is not afraid to say the tough fatherly things. In other words, Jeremiah knows God can be trusted. God knew him before he was born in the sense of his plan, as he knows all of us in the sense of his plan for our lives, and God has fitted him for what he's going to do. But he tells him, don't act on your fears. Verse 18, now behold, I've made you today as a fortified city and a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze, and you're going to be against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its priests princes and its priests and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but you will, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. It's important for us to understand that in the days preceding the breakout of Babylonian persecution, Babylonian persecution, God will bring people to call Israel to a moment of repentance. Chapter 2, verse 5 explains the problem in Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? Go down to verse 8. The priest did not say, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me and prophets prophesied by Baal, and they walked after things that did not profit. Now, if we went no farther in the book of Jeremiah than that right there, I want to ask you, has Babylon made its way into the experience of the Old Testament church in the days of Jeremiah? If we're prophesying by Baal, maybe the Babylonian influence has already done its work to destroy the soul of the nation before the nation is physically accosted by Nebuchadnezzar himself. Verse 10, well, let's start with verse 9. Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons, I will contend. In the margin of my Bible, I have written this little note, love that leads to conflict. Do we have the real thing, or do we actually have some sentimentalism, which is not love at all? There are many people who don't understand that love is, is inclusive of feeling, but it supersedes feeling in a sense of right and wrong. Verse 10, for cross to the coastlands of Kittim, and see, and send to Kedar, and observe closely, and see if there's been such a thing as this. And here's the thing. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? In other words, why turn your back on a god that showed himself faithful? Continuing on. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountains of living waters, to hew for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And skipping down to verse 19, it sounds like a, a commentary on our day. Our day. You know, folks, our society is just about 
the prodigal society. We're just about in the pig pen. All we have to do is to get to the place where we don't have enough to eat, and then everybody will be turning back. Now, I don't want to do too much with that metaphor, but it does tie in just a little bit with Climate Sunday, doesn't it? Your own wickedness, it says, will correct you, verse 19, and your apostasies will reprove you. You talk to an employer. It's a great achievement in today's day and age if you hire somebody and they actually come to work every day. How many parents have said, we're going different directions, and children have only one side of the gender line to direct them, especially as they come into adulthood? Illegitimacy is an illegitimate word nowadays. The truth of the matter is, nothing or anybody is illegitimate. The scriptures will say, we don't even know how to blush. But the dysfunction of disobedience is about to catch up with us. And the world's getting ready to say, enough disorder, enough chaos and breakdown. And all we need is for the, is for the pillars that have created security for the last seven decades or so since World War II to be knocked out. And pretty soon, this fragile and insecure world that can be moved easily by fact or fiction will be ready to move according to the dictates of the supposed security coming back to God. Your own wickedness will correct you. That's where we're at as a nation. Go on to verse 29. Why do you contend with me? You've all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain I have struck your sons. They accepted no chastening. Your sword devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. God says, I've sent you people to talk for me. And what do you do? You completely ignore them. But more than that, it's not enough. You need to shut them up. So you'll destroy them. You'll take their lives. When we look at the experience of the Israelites, I can be certain to assure you that there was still a temple. There were still services in the temple. But they had a whole lot more going on than that. But they did not want to lose their assurance. Go over to chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Chapter 5 of Jeremiah, the story before the fall of Jerusalem and the oppression of Babylon. Chapter 5, verse 1, roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. And look now and take note. And seek her in her open squares if you can find a man. Is there one who does justice and seeks truth? Then I will pardon her. You get the idea that Jeremiah is contending with God like Abraham did. What if you find somebody in the city? And God's saying, I've looked. I've looked hard and long. Verse 2, and although they say, as the Lord lives. In other words, they haven't lost their cultural verbiage. Happy Sabbath. They haven't lost the ability to speak according to their religious uniqueness. Surely they swear falsely. Oh, Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You've smitten them, but they did not weaken. You've consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They've made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Skip down to verse 12. But they all want assurance. It's false assurance, but they like it nonetheless. Verse 12. They've lied about the Lord, and they've said, not he. Misfortune will not come upon us. And we will not see sword or famine. Turn over to chapter 6, looking at verse 13. Chapter 6. From the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from prophet, even to priest, even, everyone deals falsely. They've healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. 
God gave them a test. It was in the voice of the prophets. Would there be any repentance? Verse 27 of chapter 6. I've made you, that's speaking of Jeremiah, an assayer and a tester among my people that you may know and to say their ways. All of them are stubbornly rebellious. When we stop and we look at the journey of Israel before Babylon fell, before Daniel was carried off, we find a nation in which the principles, the ideas, and the experience of Babylon has invaded the experience. Go over to chapter 7, verse 13. It says, And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spake to you, rising up early, and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called, but you did not answer, indeed, I will, I will do to the house of Israel, which is called by my, do the house which is called by my name, and which you trust, and the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight. I've cast all your brothers, and all the, as I cast all your brothers and the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for these people. This is now God talking to Jeremiah. Don't pray for these people, and don't lift up and cry and pray for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. Pretty painful moments, but let's find out why. Skip to the end of the chapter. God is done with the false sense of contact with him. And here's why, the end of the chapter. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. Well, we already read about that. Baal, the idols of Baal, prophesying by Baal. Verse 31. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come in to my mind. Verse 32, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place. I want you to get the picture. It's a lot of Bible verses. Israel was destroyed in 722 by the Ninevites. The 10 tribes, you have to remember, at this point in time, there is no Israel. There has always been a faithful follower, followers of God, which we call Israel, but the 10 tribes to the north were called Israel. And they went and committed spiritual adultery with every other God on the face of the planet. And God sent prophet after prophet. But finally, in 722 B.C., Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians, and they are no more. God, in effect, says through Jeremiah, you saw all of this, you knew about all of this, and you made only the slightest attempt to be different, and in the end, you're worse. But in, Is in Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom, you've heard about it. It's what uh, those who believe in the immortality of the soul teaches the illustration of why people burn forever because it was the trash dump. And in the trash dump, there was always a smoldering fire. What you need to know, it was a, turned into a trash dump by Josiah because they were offering up little babies in the hand of a red-hot, heated idol in which you could hear the burning flesh of the baby as it was screaming out. And God says, I couldn't even think of such a thing, and you're doing it in Jerusalem. This is the, the depth of degradation to which Israel has gone in the days of a young boy named Daniel. The risk and the redemption are on the line. God is taking the risk. Jeremiah is his mouthpiece. And God says, I couldn't even think of this. Go over to chapter 11. 
Actually, we're going to run out of time, so I'm going to move us farther along here. We know that Jeremiah 17, 9 says the human heart is deceitfully wicked beyond all understanding. But let's get down to the brass tacks. Let's skip over all the amazing chapters. You ought to read it. But go over to Jeremiah chapter 26. And let's get us into the showdown moment between Jeremiah and the institution of of the city and the institution of the kinghood and the institution of the church. Here we are. Jeremiah chapter 26. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, 609 to 605 B.C., the son of Josiah, king of Judah, his word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to the cities of Judah, who have come to worship in the Lord's house. And all the words that I've commanded you, speak them. Don't omit a word. That's some pretty strong marching orders from God to Jeremiah. Perhaps they will listen. It's God's prayer. Everyone and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deed. And you'll say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my laws which I have set before you, to listen to the words of my servant, the prophets, whom I have been sending to you again and again, but you've not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh. You have to remember now, this is the place of worship in Israel, the ten tribes. It's now gone. And this city I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. Verse 7. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. He chose the wrong time, the wrong group, the wrong place with the wrong message. How do I know? Verse 8, when Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets, and all the people seized him saying, you must die. Now I want to tell you, when what you believe is so, you are so insecure in what you believe that you can't listen to something else, you, my friends, are walking in darkness. When someone cannot talk with you about something without it making you mad, when nobody can tell you you're wrong, I want you to understand that the main work of a prophet prior to the oppression of Babylon was to declare that there was a call to repentance that was needed in God's people. And we're living in a day and age when that call comes rare and rarer. God actually knows that in the age of affluence and luxury, in the age of purposelessness and largely meaninglessness in mission, His own church has wandered into a friendship with the world, which the city of Babylon represents and the nation of Babylon represents. And you should expect in the age where there is to be a call of readiness for what's coming, the breakout moment, that there will be a call to repentance and that God will be saying, trouble is coming. The lawlessness of the world will be punished. And before it's punished, there will be an attempt to silence all those who call the world to repentance. There is a call to the remnant that should be coming from fathers and mothers, teachers. There is a call to repentance to the remnant who have a call of invitation and repentance to the world that should be coming from the pulpits. But we have been trained, just like the rest of the world, to, to, be, to listen, just like in the days of Jeremiah, we want to be told everything's okay, it's all going to work out. Well, I'm here to tell you, we've got the most wonderful good news there is, and that is that the prince, Michael, is going to stand up, 
And then he's going to take guard over his children, and he's going to deliver everyone whose name's written in the book. The bad news is, is that the heart and soul of the Israelite nation in the land of Judah was so rotten that there's only four people to write about when you come to the experience in exile. And we don't know how many people also were nerved by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. But we do know this. The remnant got a whole lot smaller after Nebuchadnezzar came to town. Babylon finds its way into the hearts and minds of people before it exercises its persecuting power. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezekiel. Go backwards to Ezekiel chapter 14. We have a harder element to wrestle with. Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 14. I want to look at the verse 2 and 3. Ezekiel was also a prophet, a contemporary of Jeremiah. He got carted off halfway through the sieges of Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't go when Daniel went, and he wasn't there when Jerusalem was destroyed. But when Nebuchadnezzar came and did some rearrangement of the royal king, kingship, he took 10,000 tradesmen with him, and Ezekiel went with him. Ezekiel was pronouncing similar messages before he left for Babylon, like Jeremiah was inside the city of Jerusalem. And this is Ezekiel's message, same period of time. Son of man, these men have been setting up their idols in their hearts and have put, and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idol in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter of the view of the multitude of his idols in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. Oh, it's harder today because we've gotten quite good at saying the church in the past was the problem. Legalist. We've got very good at creating enough space between us and the Holy Spirit so we can maneuver our own way to the new world. We don't want to be like them. The truth of the matter is there were some people in the church of old that were truly legalist. And there's people in the church today listening, sitting on these very pews, some listening to me at this very moment who are legalist. Whether they're on the left side of the aisle or the right side of the aisle, they're going to do it their own way and they're going to believe that it's their actions that matter most. And they don't want anybody messing with their lives. If they tend to be over on the worldly side, they don't want anybody to tell them that the commandment says you're not supposed to make people work on the Sabbath. So prepare for it. Remember it. And don't go make everybody work. And if they're over here on the right side, they may want everybody to eat just like they eat. And if you don't, well, you have a huge problem. Well, the truth of the matter is, God is calling us to a narrow road. But you know what? It doesn't matter whether you're really, really careful or really, really careless, and you take the name Seventh-day Adventist. The truth of the matter is, as soon as Jesus is not Lord and you don't love him and you're doing it your own way, you're a legalist whether you're on the left or the right. This is the way it works. Can the Holy Spirit be Lord? Can I humble myself at God's word? Am I willing to say, Lord, search me and know me like David did in Psalm 139 and see if there be any wicked way in me? Have I set up any idols in my heart, Lord? I'll tell you the things that make people the maddest. Music and dress. And diet's probably not far behind. Ask me how I know. 
Because when I disciple somebody to serve Jesus, I take enough time to help them understand how practical religion works. Seventh-day Adventists happen to believe that the way we live in every single little thing should be turned over to be directed by Jesus. But if I go to talking to you about how you're dressed or how you eat or what you watch or what you listen to, I sat in an office once, not in this conference, talking to somebody who took their payroll from the tithe just like me. And I want to tell you, I saw a man get so mad. And I want to tell you something. I believe in the truth. And I really believe the truth is independent of emotion. And while I'm to love the truth, I don't have to hate people who don't think like I think. I don't have to tune them out. I don't have to turn them off. As a matter of fact, I just might be wrong, and I might need to listen. And you might be wrong, and you might need to listen. The truth of the matter is, arrogance is the sin of this age, and people are looking through their lenses and deciding whether they want to listen before they ever hear what is said. And this, my friends, will get you lost, just like Paul writing in the second book of Thessalonians chapter 2. You don't love the truth, you'll believe a lie. It'll be your lie. And by the way, this modern age is all set up to affirm that you can have your own truth. But I'm here to tell you, believing you've got the truth is not the same as letting the way, the truth, and the life talk to you about right and wrong. The road to heaven is much narrower. Ask the one who went before us. He said it's wide on the way to destruction, and it's narrow on the way to heaven, and there are only a few who find it. The good news is there can be as many as want to. But if we've set up idols in our heart, and somebody actually talks to us and we get angry, it might be to us a call to remember we might be on the path of those pre-exilic Jerusalemites before Nebuchadnezzar showed up at the door for the last time and says, I'm done with this. I've been patient for 20 years. It's all coming down. This is where we're at. If you've got your mind made up already and you can't be told you're wrong, why do you even bother coming to church? Why do you bother tuning in to watch? If there is, and, and by the way, we are experts at destroying somebody's credibility. Uh, I would have, we don't really know much about Jeremiah. I'll tell you what, he had some personal growth moments. And I'm sure it would have been doable to find a reason not to listen to him. Hananiah, the head of the false priest, when Jeremiah comes in with his yoke and he says, this nation's going to wear the yoke of Babylon, Hananiah takes it off and destroys it. Jeremiah says, you know what? God's going to replace it with an iron oak, iron yoke, and they're going to know I'm a true prophet and a false prophet because by the end of the year, you're going to be dead for deceiving God's people. False assurance. You know, folks, we might not have those chapters in our church. It may take a little bit more work for you and a little bit less of supernatural intervening for you to figure out what's right and wrong because in Jeremiah's day, they didn't have 66 books and they didn't have the promise of Revelation 12 and 14 about the spirit of prophecy. But for you and I, our hearts can be calibrated in humility to hear truth and to be called to a life of obedience. Nobody wants to stand up and be different. Nobody wants to be the only one. Did they throw him in jail? No, not that time. But later on, in chapter 32, he is imprisoned. In chapter 32, he mentions Molech again. In chapter 38, let's go there, Jeremiah 38. We have to see one of the, most, the greatest men of the Bible. Chapter 38. Jeremiah gets himself in trouble again. 
What's he in trouble for doing? He's in trouble for doing what God told him to do, which is the right kind of trouble to be in if you're going to be in trouble. Jeremiah chapter 38. And what has he done? This time, he's reminded them that it doesn't matter how many prayers they pray, they're still going to be taken over by Babylon. God has ordained Babylon to be the punisher of a profligate nation. Jeremiah chapter 38. He's thrown into the cistern. Verse 1. Now Shephatiah, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, and the son of Shemaiah. They heard the words that Jeremiah was speaking to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in the city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. Thus says the Lord, this city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Then the officials said to the king, now let this man be put to death, inasmuch as he's discouraging the men of war who are left in this city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but rather their harm. So Zedekiah said, great cowardly move. He knows Jeremiah is true. Later on, he's going to call him for a secret rendezvous. <laughs> Behold, he's in your hands. For the king can do nothing against you. Then they took Jeremiah, cast him in the cistern of Melchijah, the, son of the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. Now here comes one of the greatest men of the Bible. Now I need you to understand. You know, Paul has some pretty positive words in the New Testament for the people who seek him out while he's in prison. When everybody says you're the bad guy and somebody some steps up and says he's not, that person becomes more special to you than just about anybody else. And this is an Ethiopian by the name of Ebed-Melech. So you need to understand, the siege is going on. The men of war are on the wall. The establishment's keeping the phrase up, keep your courage up, they're going to go away, it's going to be okay. The temple's here. Nothing bad can happen. And Jeremiah says the temple isn't going to matter anymore. You have to understand that everybody just said he needs to die. You have to remember that everybody ran away from Jesus. You have to remember how the carnal heart is naturally just plain old fearful and self-serving. To understand the greatness of verse 7, but Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch, so he's working for the king, while he was in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. Now the king was sitting down in the gate of Benjamin, and Ebed-Melech went out from the king's palace, and he spoke to the Lord, saying, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they've done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern. And he will die right where he is because of the famine, for there's no more bread in the city. Well, the king changes his mind. He allows Ebed-Melech to get him out. Praise the Lord for a man of courage who understood right and wrong and was willing to throw his lot in with the truth. How sad it is that so few were able or willing to hear the truth. Go down to verse 17. Now for the private visit between Jeremiah and Zedekiah. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you'll indeed go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, you'll live. This city will not be burned with fire and you and your household will survive. But if you will not go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then this city will be given over to the hand of the Chaldeans, and they'll burn it with fire, and you yourself will not escape from their hand. 
Now, folks, could we have a grace moment for a minute here? I want you to understand the greatness of what God does in a person's heart. Ten verses earlier, the king shows no loyalty to the prophet whatsoever and says to all of his counselors, treat him however you want. And ten verses later, the king has called him after Ebed-Melech has confronted the king and said, we're acting wickedly. And Jeremiah, as a true man of God, even though he was just abandoned by the king, is willing to give the king a private audience and give him assurance that the future can still be good. But the king said to Jeremiah, verse 19, I dread the Jews who have gone over to the Chaldeans, for they may give me over into their hand and they will abuse me. Then Jeremiah said, they will not give you over. Please obey the Lord in what I'm saying to you, that it may go well with you and you may live. What an amazing man. The Spirit of God in his heart. But I do want you to sense, some of the Jews have already snuck out of the city and everything's okay. The day will come when the gig is up. The day will come when Jerusalem is captured. That's chapter 39. The interesting thing is that Jeremiah, all those Jews that have gone out, what do you think they've been doing? They've been talking about what's going on in the city. They know everything in the camp of Babylon that Jeremiah has said. That's why Zedekiah was afraid to go because he had been resisting for 11 years. This rebellion against Babylon was over a decade old. And Zedekiah is afraid after creating all that trouble that he'll be in trouble no matter what Jeremiah says. Friends, do you know how to hear, hear truth? How did Zedekiah get himself into a position where this man could not take any peace in the word of God through Jeremiah? Somehow he had trained himself to not be able to hear. It's mainly because when he heard, he wouldn't obey. If he would have moved one step, the assurance of God would have come into his soul. He would have lived, but instead he doesn't live. His eyes, he watches his own sons be killed. His eyes are poked out. And he's a captive until he dies. But Jeremiah is spared. Turn over to chapter 40. Not only is Jeremiah spared, but Jeremiah turns out to be the hero. Verse 40, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan. There's a lot of Nebus here. This is not Nebuchadnezzar. This is Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard had released him from Ramah when he had taken him bound in chains among the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. Now the captain of the bodyguard had taken Jeremiah and he said to him, listen to this testimony. The Lord your God promised this calamity against this place. Sounds to me like somebody on the outside might have been quoting the prophet Isaiah too. And the Lord has brought it on and done just as he promised. And listen to this, the heathen, so-called, because you people sinned against the Lord and did not listen to his voice, therefore this thing has happened to you. Go over to chapter 45. We're almost done. How about Baruch, his attendant? These people associated, 
Verse 1, this is the message which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written down these words in the book of Jeremiah's dictation. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, Baruch. You said, Ah, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groaning. I've found no rest. It sounds a little bit like the 12 disciples who all thought they were on a trajectory to greatness and glory with God's man, God himself, Jesus. What did they think would happen attaching themselves to Jeremiah? Maybe they expected the nation to turn around and great honor to come to them, but it didn't work out that way. Verse 4, thus you are to say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I'm about to tear down, and what I've planted, I'm about to uproot. This is the whole land. Verse 5, for all people today who somehow are anticipating something better in the future, I'd like to suggest to you this is what you should claim. What God gave to Baruch, let's claim too. But you're seeking great things for yourself. He actually puts it in the form of the question, but you are you seeking great things for yourself. Do not seek them. For behold, I'm going to bring disaster on all flesh, declares the Lord, but I will give you your life as booty in all the places where you may go. And I've got just a little bit more. You could think this was written for us in the coronavirus era. Turn over to chapter 49. Chapter 49, beginning with verse 14. I've heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy is sent among the nations saying, gather yourselves together and come up against her and rise up for battle. For behold, I've made you small among the nations, despised among men. Obadiah records this very same message. We don't even know if it's original with Obadiah or Jeremiah, but it's in both books. Now listen to this last verse, verse 16. As for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has done what? Deceived you. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. O oh, you who live in the clefts of the rock and who occupy the heights of the hill. It's like they were doing the Adventist version of getting out of town. And by the way, there will come a time when we should get out of town. Though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. I want to end with this statement. When Jesus walked the earth, he fulfilled the role of prophet. When he went back to heaven, he fulfilled the role of priest. And when he comes again, he'll fulfill the role as king. He was rejected for the very same reason they said no to Jeremiah. But he wasn't rejected by all. You find this very little interesting commentary, which is worth a sermon, but we've already had one but I'm going to tag it on on the very end. After preaching to the mixed multitude, from the scribes and the Pharisees down to the little boys who brought their lunch, 
you have this very interesting commentary by the gospel writer. And this is what it says. And the common people heard him how? Gladly. You know, the head elder of this church is a retired general surgeon. But he grew up on a farm. And he had to do all the dirty work and all the down-to-earth work that, for some reason, this society today thinks is less important. His preparation to be our head elder probably is a whole lot more about what happened on the farm than about what happened in the school of osteopathy. It doesn't matter what letters are after your name or aren't after your name. We're all the same before Jesus Christ. And if you don't want to be deceived, then you're going to have to be common enough to recognize that you're a sinner. And there might be idols that were set up in your heart. And it might be that your lens is political or polarized even inside the church, and you won't listen to somebody over here or over here. Can the truth be the truth? Jesus offended his own disciples, and he offended the Pharisees. How did he manage to pull off such a wide spectrum of offense? Because he walked in the narrow way. That is the only way to heaven. And Christ will walk it with us. But as we begin a series on Daniel, you need to understand what he came out of, where he was. Obviously, there were some inside the city that were redeemable, more than redeemable. They would be part of risk-taking for the redemption. What Israel didn't do for a lost world, God scattered them, and they did for a lost world. And a monarch of the greatest order is converted in Daniel chapter 4, and we don't know how many other thousands and millions said, this is a true God. But we do know this, wise men from the east ended up when Jesus was born. There can be no doubt this is a legacy of Daniel. God's calling us. Our homes are to be sanctuaries. Our hearts are to be sanctuary. Babylon is fallen, but Babylon has found its way into the heart of God's people sometimes and into the church. And he's calling us today to repentance. No, this sermon isn't chock full of encouragement, but there is this encouragement in it. The Christ who spread his arms and died for your sin and my sin even though my sins put him there, the Christ we abandon, the Christ that we've abandoned with maybe our modern-day spiritual harlotries is still calling to us. And before we find ourselves in the last crucible of purification for his people, he's calling us to take the journey with him wherever it leads us. Whoever is our friend on the other side of following Jesus is a true friend. Whoever's not was a false one. And he's calling us to make a journey in which he is paramount, he is first, and truth is truth, whether it cuts through this lens or that lens, this chapter or that chapter, this circle of friends or that circle of friends. God is standing in the voice of his messengers, parents, pastors, prophets, teachers, policemen, whoever. And he's calling his people back to the humility of hearing so that we won't allow our human nature to concoct a lie of our own creation and thus be eternally lost because Babylon's about to break out in oppression. 
Babylon is about to exercise authority for compulsion and compliance. God's calling us to repentance in advance of it out of love for a lost world so that we walk into the dark clouds with the assurance that Michael the prince will stand up and personally guard his people. And he will deliver everyone. Just think if Zedekiah would have taken the, the advice of Jeremiah, he could have been delivered. He's going to deliver every single one whose names are written in the book. Would you like your name written in the book? I imagine for most of you it already is. Can you be happy? Can you be thankful? He wrote it with his own hand. And you're engraved on the palms of his hands. So let's go forward into the life of Daniel knowing what he came out of. Let's remember people's redemption is on the line and we're called to take a few risks. And just follow him wherever he goes. It's the safest place to be. So if it's in a lion's den, be there. If it's in a furnace that you're feeling the heat 100 feet away, walk into it. If it's like Huss, standing amidst the pile of the, of the, the wood, be there. It's probably going to be a whole lot smaller in the early chapters. But don't fail to be there. And then when Jesus stands up and stands by your side, with Jesus in the vessel, you can smile at the storm. That's the goal. That's the point. It's yours to do something with. Either I just churned through an hour of your time and it was a royal waste, or I just took you on a journey of self-reflection of what to expect before oppression breaks out and who you need to be. Christ alone can do this, but he will. Christ alone within you. I'm appealing to you today. Let Christ be Lord of all and walk with Christ afraid of nothing because he is Lord of all.